The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent 2019. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 5, 1-11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. As Ben mentioned, my name is Bryson. I'm one of the pastoral residents here, and I usually don't get that far without people picking up on a little bit of of something from an accent. Um, so if you did notice that, uh, we are originally from Kentucky. The Amex family is originally from Kentucky. Uh, and the transition to the Quad Cities has been uh, a difficult one to explain. It's, it's been a hard one for people to kind of track with. So let me see if you can kind of follow our path to Sacred City this morning. I'm going to try and work through it with you. So I say we are from Kentucky. And when I say we, I mean my wife, Emma, myself, and our, little, our oldest, Silas. And we moved to Texas from Kentucky, where I was a youth and a young adults pastor out in Texas. Um, we had our youngest, Canaan, there. And then we uh, ventured from West Texas to the Midwest, to the Quad Cities. So what I'm really saying is I'm going to have a hard time explaining to my boys one day that we aren't Cyclones, we're not Hawkeyes, we're not Red Raiders, we are Wildcats. So, we'll see. We'll see. So, how do, how do three Kentuckians and a Texan end up in the Quad Cities? Um, well, to make a long story short, we moved here. Um, no. Uh, I had been in some form of ministry for about three years, um, and I was kind of growing discontent with how I was seeing that ministry done. And so, as I was kind of looking through different churches that maybe having a similar expression of the ministry that I saw in the Bible, um, I stumbled upon on a lunch break one day, the residency program of Sacred City. Um, I watched the YouTube video probably 15 times. Uh, Thought, well, these guys seem pretty cool. They're doing ministry the right way, or at least the way that I see it done rightly. Um, But I'm sure, and I think this is kind of the default position, I think, that a lot of ministers have, or at least a lot of Reformed guys have, is that they're probably theologically wacky. Um, So I checked out the theology of Sacred City. They were solid. 
I found out they were still accepting applications. I sent mine in. Uh, three months later, we're traveling around the country with two toddlers and a truck full of stuff. Um, and we've loved seeing how God's been moving since we've been here. Since we moved to the Quad Cities, um, we've seen people get saved. We've seen people get baptized. Um, we've seen the gospel kind of take shape in our own lives and in the lives of others. We've seen Justin's mustache um, and are praying to see that go as well. <laughs> but, but not only has God been moving inside of Sacred City, inside the walls of the Junior Theater, but even outside of the walls as well, um, through missional community life, the, the city is being renewed one area at a time. Um, people are stepping in and being on mission to others outside of this church. Um, and then God, I don't want to say God's best work, but certainly one of God's most satisfying works this year um, has been Alabama not making the playoffs. And so we get a year off of Roll Tide, which is good to, it's good to have. That's why Justin's not here this morning, by the way. But in all seriousness, yeah. In all, in all seriousness, we've enjoyed the residency program. We've enjoyed the Quad Cities. Um, and a lot of people ask what the residency program's all about. Um, and so in short, I'll try and explain it to you. If you want a little bit more in-depth of an answer, there's a podcast floating around about it, um, about the residents. But in short, we do some reading. Um, we do some things like preaching at Sacred City Youth. Um, say, uh, ben mentioned some of the other things that we kind of preach at. We sit in Sermon Lab. Um, more recently, preaching at Sacred City Moline. Uh, meetings, Justin's Laundry on Thursdays. Um, I'm, just, I'm joking. I'm joking. Laundry's on Fridays. But for real, for real on a serious note, um, we're going to be taking a deep dive into love this week as we kind of conclude our series of Advent. Um, and I'll try and get this done speedily because I know that there are plenty of husbands out there who have not done their Christmas shopping yet. So let me pray for us this morning and we'll hop right in. Father God, I want to thank you for your love. God, I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for this time that we have to just kind of sit in your presence where we get to experience your Holy Spirit. We get to come into the fullness of your love. And so God, for, for the one out there that maybe is having a difficult time feeling the love of God this morning, I pray that you reveal that to them. God, use your Holy Spirit and use your word to speak to everyone here. Let us have open hearts and open ears to hear what your word has to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, when I was thinking about this sermon on love, I kind of came to the realization that, that we are a people who are infatuated with love. We, we love love. We read books about love. We watch movies about love. Hallmark has made a profit on making the same love movies 600 slightly different ways with the same cast. And after doing a bit of research, I've discovered that 65% of all songs are dedicated to love or, or kind of love-themed. And I, I, while I was expecting there to be kind of a high amount of that, I think 65 seemed a little bit higher than I thought. So I was surprised to see that number. But I really noticed it when writing this sermon because it was hard to not drop in little song lyrics 
when trying to write this guy out. Um, we love love songs, love movies. We, we read love books. We, we make major life decisions based around this concept of love. We, we form political opinions based on love. And the reality is that no matter, no matter how pessimistic or depressed or kind of downbeat your life is, there is something or there is someone that you love. But we have a problem with this concept of love. We lack a clear understanding of what love is. There's this, there's this kind of mystery floating around about love. And so like every probably Christian couple got when they got married, there's this book floating around, The Five Love Languages. And Gary, Tra- Gary Chapman tried to do us a solid by just narrowing it down to five. Um, but even in that, he says we all have primary and secondary love languages. And then there's this unique combination of both that we have. Each individual person has their own unique combination of love languages. And so with that, and with those numbers, we have a 0.00032% chance of meeting somebody with our exact love language. We all have very different views on love. Chapman points out that we use the same word for love when we talk about our pets, when we talk about our people in our life, when we talk about the places that we like to go, we use the same word, love, for all of that. He then goes on to say this, quote, if all that isn't confusing enough, we also use the word love to explain behavior. A politician is involved in an adulterous relationship and calls it love. The preacher calls it sin. The wife of the alcoholic picks up the pieces after her husband's latest episode. The wife calls it love. The psychologist calls it codependency. The, family, or the, the, the parent indulges all the child's wishes, calling it love. But the family therapist would call it irresponsible parenting. Why do I say this? Because it seems kind of clear we all have very different views and very different understandings of this concept of love. And if we were to poll every single person in here and I was to ask you, what is love? The likelihood is that we would have very divergent and even contradictory answers. Each, each individual person's perspective on love is not like the person sitting next to you. You know that because there are fights in your marriage. Love is a confusing topic, and we certainly haven't aided to the confusion surrounding love either. Our answers, like the people mentioned in Chapman's scenario, are going to be very different. What you call love, somebody else may call codependency. Our confusion with love and our infatuation with love are kind of at odds. They're, they're battling against each other because we desire instant gratitude. We desire instant answers. We desire instant love. And we've grown kind of weary of this pursuit of true and genuine love. And so what we've done as a result of that is cheapen love to make it more, more easily grasped. 
more easily attained, and more, even, even more easily parted with. In our confusion on what exactly love is, we have loosened the definition of what makes up love. And in this confusion rose this notion, or, or, or we'll call it a movement, this movement of hashtag love is love. And maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't, but we have, a, we have as a culture created this idea of love is love. We've become bored with the true pursuit of genuine love and replaced it with our own concept of what makes us feel comfortable in the moment, love is love. Now, if you are unfamiliar with this phrase, I have no doubt that even though you may not know exactly what it means, there, there, is, there is a concept and there is an aspect of this movement that you have accepted and that you have believed in your own life. So what does love is love mean? Well, it started as a movement inside the LGBTQ community, but the effects and thought process behind this movement transcend past that specific group. They just kind of trademark the phrase, love is love. So love is love means this. It's not about the sex or gender of a person, but how they make you feel. Catch this. So as long as you're happy and getting the affection and affirmation that you need to be happy, it doesn't matter the gender or sex of the other person. You see the issue with this, apart from the obvious one? This type of love rests solely on your own personal affection that you receive. It rests on your own happiness received in the relationship. It rests on you getting your own personal dose of unconditional affirmation. We desire to solely be told how fantastic we are, how right we are, how good we are, how great of a job we did, how flawless our words and actions and thoughts are. And if anybody was to ever question your motives or question your morals or your deeds, they have now broken this chain of unconditional affirmation and now they are the people that are hateful. They are the people that are now not loving. Love is love is nothing more than each individual person placing themselves at the center of the universe. And this results in us feeling the need to be affirmed constantly by others. And the moment that this lacks, the moment that this goes away, the problem lays on the person that has now not given you the affirmation that you desire. The, the problem lays on the person that might be suggesting the world's not about you. We falsely perceive ourselves as perfect. We falsely perceive ourselves as holy and worthy of praise and worthy of affirmation. And with this thought process of love is love, the ability to grow as a person, as a relationship, is stopped. It's stunted. And if the problem persists, 
then the ability to grow ceases. It's not going to happen anymore. Love, ironically, has become the most selfish thing in the universe. We think, don't tell me I'm wrong. I don't want to hear that I have flaws. I don't need to be told or reminded of you that I've sinned. I don't need to know I'm a bad husband or that I'm lazy. Remind me how great I am. Tell me I'm killing it. Tell me I'm knocking it out of the park. I want to hear the good stuff. We have all taken on this concept of love to some degree because we avoid being corrected. We avoid being confronted. We avoid being reminded we're not there yet. And we maneuver around having our depravity placed in front of us. For example, when our sin is called out in MC, what do we do? We think about not going back for a few weeks. We talk about changing MCs. The problems with those people. When we're reminded that we're not the greatest parent in the world, on the way home with our spouse, we're chatting. How can they say that about me? Their kid's a nightmare. His head rotated around and he was doing the vomit. It was gross, but I think we made it an exorcist. Or when you're reminded that you're not the greatest driver in the world, as you, I'm sorry, as they didn't see you, or, so they, that you pull out in front of them, they give you a honk, and now your affirmation is broken because you got honked at, so you're gonna honk three more times at them and then give them a little piece of your mind. Just let them know that they're number one. I'm reminded of when we first moved to Texas. And obviously, I think there are some Texans in the room this morning, um, and they know that the grilling and the meat in Texas is, I hate to give them credit, but it's fantastic. It's so good. And so I felt obligated moving down that I've got to be like this grill master. Not only as a dad, but now as a Texan. So we went out to the dollar store, got a $12 two and a half foot grill that I would set on the table and then still had to kind of do this number to grill. And then we went and bought some ribeyes that could barely even fit on the thing. Um, so I seasoned them up got the grill firing, and then as the grill was warming up, I spent, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes watching YouTube videos of guys that are going to tell me how to become the best grill master around. So after a few videos, I threw them on, cooked them to perfecto. They were, they were amazing. Brought them out to Emma. She ate about half of one, and as she got about halfway through, I said, well, what do you think? Let me strike that. I proudly asked her what she thought. And so she goes, it's good. But 
it's actually completely raw on this half. And so immediately I grab her hand. We hit, we hit our knees on the floor, and we just start seeking the spirit for wisdom and patience. That's not what happened. She says that. I push my chair back. I'm mad. Okay, Gordon Ramsay. You're, you're, you're the grill master. You know what? You can do it next time. It's your fault anyway. You made me get a $12 grill. How do you expect anybody to grill on this thing? Love has changed to tell me how good I am. And we've all embraced it in some form or fashion. And a lot of people will push back on this idea of unconditional affirmation being a negative thing um, with some facts. They'll say things like, well, in the last 10 years, as this movement's kind of taken off, divorce rates have been significantly down. And that's true. Divorce rates have been significantly down. But marriage rates are also significantly down. People aren't getting married anymore. Now, why? Well, this, this realm of unconditional affirmation that we're kind of being called to live in, we're understanding that that's not realistic. We, we can't live there over a period of time. Why is that? Well, because in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we are all primarily concerned about me, us. We are our own first priority. We're concerned about our own desires. And if everybody is seeking what their own specific heart desires, commitment isn't just difficult. Commitment is impossible. Because we are instinctively committed to ourselves first. The moment that my happiness or affirmation is compromised, love, love is gone. The moment that, it, that I stop feeling like I'm being affirmed, love now vanishes and I get combative. It becomes impossible to commit to someone because now we're at odds the second that one another's affirmation for each other ceases, even if just for a second. Now, what's wrong with that, though? Well, love is supposed to be expressed through commitment. But we desire momentary affirmation over commitment. And so inside the people that are getting married, that's why in 18% of those marriages, there's infidelity. Why? Well, because one spouse stops feeling affirmed from the other spouse, and now they turn to whatever person will give them the affirmation that they need. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is known as the love chapter in the Bible. I think we have it on the screen. I don't know. I'll give you a second to get there. 1 Corinthians 13, this is going to be in verse 11. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. When I spoke, when I thought, when I reasoned like a child. And if you have children, you know exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking about. How does a child think? I, me, and mine. It doesn't matter if you've watched the same episode of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse for the last six hours. It doesn't matter that you think that you actually just saw Toodles from the kitchen or that Mickey is in your nightmares. Because the second that you turn off that episode for your own sanity, they're now screaming, Mickey, 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 Mickey. And now you're like battling which one's more irritating. (laughs) And when they finally realize that you're not going to cave, they, for some reason, I wish I could understand a toddler's mind sometimes. They walk up to their brother and they hit him who's just sitting there by himself. (laughs) And then when the inevitable end of the road comes of them being disciplined, they walk to their room mumbling, mom and dad don't even love me. Mom and dad, they don't even love me. Because they didn't get what they wanted. But love requires us, as the Apostle Paul mentions, to grow beyond this mindset. Love is expressed through commitment to someone beyond ourselves. The commitment that we're hesitant to give. Because of our hatred of no, because of our hatred of a moment of us not getting what we want, because of a hatred of a moment of not receiving affirmation. Biblical love calls into consideration something more than your own personal happiness. Something more than your own unconditional affirmation. Biblical love is more than some situationally based feeling of a moment of you thinking or perceiving that you are flawless. Biblical love is more than mere lip service. But in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul shows us love as something that is demonstrated. Let's read that together, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love is not simply a moment of expressing one of these things, but a lifetime of devotion to all of them. Contrary to this postmodern view Love is love. Being a constant pursuit of self-affirmation, biblical love calls for self-denial. Genuine love, pure love, is kind and patient, even when others don't deserve it. 
It is not exclusively a means to growing one's own esteem or resources. Real love doesn't rejoice at others' wrongdoings. Real love never says, well, they had it coming, though. Love doesn't seek to momentarily satisfy others' craving of unconditional affirmation and then go and gossip behind their back. Love isn't, oh, Mary, congrats on the baby. And then like 15 minutes later, being like, hey, did you hear about Mary? Yeah, she's not even married to Joseph yet. Hey, check this. She says it's the Holy Spirit. What a weirdo. Love perseveres even when there is every single reason to walk away. When the person deserves no love at all, true biblical unconditional love requires drastic sacrifice. Unconditional affirmation just makes a mess of fake people who start to hate each other more and more. Biblical love isn't exclusive to those like you. Unlike this postmodern view, love is love creates sides. You're either on the left or you're on the right. And we're going to spend our time loving those on our side and going to battle and hating the people on the other side. Biblical love says to cross over those boundaries, cross over those walls. Jesus says in Matthew 5, to not only love those that are like you, but to love your enemies. But how do you do that? Well, 1 John 4, 19 says that we can love because Christ loved us. And this love, like the love mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, is a demonstrated love. Now let's go to our text for this morning, Romans 5. We're going to start in verses 7. We'll read through to 8. It says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Jesus, in a sense, put his money where his mouth was. This was a love that transcended past any preference, that transcended past any political party. It transcended past any barrier set up by any enemy ever. So how can we love our enemies? Well, because as we stood there as enemies of God, Christ loved us anyways. Now, how are we enemies of God? I don't, I don't necessarily feel like an enemy of God. I've, I've never been in a cult or anything kind of creepy like that. Well, it's because of our sin and our innate natural desire to rebel against God. That's what sin is. It's a rebellion against God. And as rebels of God, we then become enemies of God. 
And this, obviously, is not a fun place to be. But Christ took the journey of love anyways for these rebels and these enemies. And he demonstrated that love to the fullest extent to the most unworthy enemy. He showed love to those who didn't have even a hint of righteousness, to those who were not lovely, to those who would despise him and hate him and would never meet the mark, Christ loved anyways. And even more than that, there is nothing of benefit that we brought to the relationship. We came, we came with baggage. We came with red flags. We came with sin. We came with a cross. We came with a grave. Let's go back to Romans 5, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. There was nothing righteous about us that deserved God's love. There, was, there wasn't a good use that Christ was seeking to, to bring out of us. He wasn't trying to make something make some sort of particular talent that we have and, and use it for his own benefit. He will, but Jesus wasn't doing this kind of DIY Facebook video of taking an old water jug and turning it into a suitcase. There wasn't new use for us. There was no use for us. Christ could do everything on his own, but he loved anyways. When there was nothing to affirm, when there wasn't a hint of anything to die for, when we were still enemies of God, Jesus demonstrated love anyways. And at just the right time, God showed bits and pieces of this love to us. In the womb of the virgin, God was showing his love to us. In the baby that was in the manger, God was revealing his love to us. In the life of that God-man, the love of God was being revealed to us. And on the cross that he took in our place and in the nails that were driven into his hands and in his feet and into the resurrection of this Emmanuel, of this God with us, God was demonstrating his love for us. And in our selfishness and our desire for unconditional affirmation, we place ourselves at the center of the universe. And we dare anyone to try and dethrone us. But Christ, who truly was at the center of the universe, the very creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the all-powerful God of the universe, crossed over all boundaries, set up by all enemies, and stood not at the center of the universe, but at the center of the consequences of those enemies that rebelled against him. He stood as the center focus of God's wrath on sin, and he was motivated by an unconditional love 
for very, very, very undeserving people. Now, why is this important? Because at the moment of there being not even the slightest glimpse of anything worthy of affirmation, Christ died anyways, changing the enemy of God into the adopted child of God. And in this Advent season, we intentionally look back to have our affections stirred for this love. We allow the Holy Spirit to rekindle the flame in our hearts. Why? Well, because we lose sight of it. We buy into this cheap idea of unconditional affirmation. And we become uninterested and confused on the unconditional love of God. And so what I want to do just for a second is confuse you just a little bit more on the love of God. But I promise that I'll bring some clarity to it. So, when I say the unconditional love of God, I do not mean that God's love does not have conditions. Now, what does that mean? Well, In our cheapening of general love, we have cheapened the love of God as well. We have carried over this this same mindset of affirmation into the love of God. And we say things like, God loves me just the way I am, and he's just so pleased with how I turned out. Man, he thinks that I'm just a hoot. He is loving me just like I am. He doesn't need me to repent. He doesn't need me to come to faith in Christ. He's just kind of sitting back in heaven thinking, oh, man, would you look at those little guys? They are just some fantastic little creatures that I made. We've turned God into this kind of divine little John hype man who just kind of sits back and ponders at our greatness and will give us, I'm not going to say okay, but but, but he'll he'll, uh, affirm us right where we're at. He just enjoys watching us thinking they are so great. And while there is an aspect of that which is true, because God's love does meet you where you're at, God's love does come to you when you don't deserve it. But God's love is too intense to leave you where you're at. Why? because of the conditions of unconditional love. R.C. Sproul divides God's love into three categories. The benevolent love of God, the beneficent love of God, and the complacent love of God. The benevolent love of God would refer to God's goodwill to all people, believers and unbelievers. The beneficent love of God would refer to his benefits that he gives all people. The Bible says things like the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. And we would call these things common grace, or or for the sake of the sermon today, we'll call them common love, God's love for all people. But what do I mean when I say God's love of complacency? Well, I don't mean smugness. I don't mean laziness. 
but rather it's this type of love that's like a sweet delight, a sweet pleasure. And this is the love of God that is first given to Christ and then through Christ given to us. Now, why that specific order? Because the condition of unconditional love wasn't met in us. It was met in Jesus. He is the only person to meet the full holy standard of God's condition. And through repentance and belief in the gospel, we come under this love that God has for Christ and Christ imputes the love to us, now making us the loved, adopted child of God. And if we don't understand what love actually is, and if our understanding of love isn't rooted and anchored and have some depth to it, then we're never going to understand the love of God. We are never going to be able to frame it up. It's not going to make sense. We're not going to be able to talk about it because we don't really know what it is. It doesn't have this sense of being spectacular. Why? Because we feel like we can earn it. We think we can meet the condition. And with the road of God's love being haltered like that, when you're trying to make this journey on your own, the love of God becomes burdensome, it becomes weary, and it becomes exhausting. Because you're trying to play catch up. I was thinking of it like this. If my wife left West Texas with the boys up to the Quad Cities in the car, and I said, okay, as soon as you get to Kansas, I'm going to start walking and I'll meet you there. When am I ever going to catch up to her in the car? I'm never going to catch up until we get to the Quad Cities, which would be like two years later for me because I'm not Forrest Gump. There's nothing worthy of affirming. There's no chance of you meeting the condition. There's nothing that you can do that Jesus couldn't do. And the things that you can do that Jesus could do, you can't do them half as well. So what's God say in love to us as we try and meet the conditions of unconditional love? Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to heap up affirmation in your own righteousness and throw those filthy rags away and rest in the righteousness of the only one to meet the conditions. Our righteousness doesn't hold up. We were enemies, but we were enemies that are loved. How is this different from our preconceived idea of love? Well, it doesn't necessarily affirm us in our sin at all, but it affirms Christ and his work and his sinlessness. And it affects those that are in Christ. It affirms Christ and it affects us. Let's read Romans 5 again, 9 through 10. It says, Since therefore... 
we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So, since we've been justified, or since we've been made right with God, we are reconciled. By being called into Christ, we have been given the love of God to save us from death and to save us from hell. But if you keep reading, there's more. We who were once enemies of God were in a sense given the ability to escape death and be reconciled to God. But now that as we stand reconciled before God, we are also being saved by Christ's life. Now, what does that mean? 1 Corinthians 1.18, you don't have to turn there. It says that the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are in Christ, who have repented and believed the gospel, they are being saved. They are being changed by the love of God. They are feeling the effects of the gospel. How, though? If we go back to verse 5 in Romans, it says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love did not leave you the way that he found you. But rather, through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, God is keeping our love tank full. He's changing us. And in, and in keeping this love tank full, we are now enabled to love our enemies. We're now enabled to love like Christ. He's working in those who are in Christ to become more like Christ, to love more like Christ. What does that look like though? Well, we see the cheapness in this love of unconditional affirmation. And instead of contributing to the walls set up by this movement of love is love, we cross over them. We love our brothers and sisters enough in Christ to confront their sin and call them to repent and believe the gospel not discuss sin behind their back. We're enabled to love our enemies and those who persecute us by praying for them, not getting caught up in social media debates. The world doesn't need another Facebook hero. It needs people to pray for their enemies. The problem is, though, we lose sight of this. And the remaining sin in our life is what we tend to desire to satisfy more than the Spirit of God that's poured into us. We want to live in a state of being constantly affirmed and not having our sin confronted in our own lives. And while there is certainly a right and wrong way to go about confronting brothers and sisters in their sin, 
no matter how it's done, no matter how gently or lovingly it happens, we tend to be frustrated anyway. We feel attacked anyways. When we get confronted with our sin, we either blow up on those who confront us or we avoid them. We call those people who call out sin judgmental. We say things like, only God can judge me. And then here's some insight to that. That's the thing that they know. That's, that's the issue. God is going to judge. And in view of that judgment, we depend on the Holy Spirit to lovingly change us and shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. And he predominantly does this in two specific ways, his word and his people. And that's why we don't simply just affirm everyone unconditionally. We, with truth and love, call brothers and sisters to repent and believe the gospel. And we give them permission to do the same in our own lives. Think of it like this. A lady goes to the doctor. She has some tests done. She gets the test done, goes back home, waits for the call to see what the test results are. The doctor gets them back. He looks at them. He sees that this lady has cancer. And so the doctor says, I don't want to make her feel bad. I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm coming off harsh or I don't want to give her unnecessary anxiety or unnecessary stress. So what's he do? He calls her and says, everything came back great. How, how is that loving at all? Let her know what's wrong. That's the loving thing to do, right? I think we can all agree on that tell her that there's something wrong. And not only that, have a plan of recovery to walk with her. Have a, have a plan of treatment. That's the loving thing to do. Now, suppose in the same instance, he calls her, tells her the news. She's sick. She has cancer. He has a plan. We're going to walk through this. We're going to get through this together. And she goes... How dare you? How dare you tell me that I have cancer? How dare you come off so judgment? That doesn't even make sense. There's no one who would do that. No one who even has the slightest little bit of self-care is going to go off on a doctor that's trying to work with them through cancer. In this scenario... We should constantly be the doctor and the patient. And motivated by love, confront our family in Christ, but not just confront them, have a plan of recovery to walk with them. And we also accept the diagnosis that other people give us. We don't argue or get combative 
we take their diagnosis in love and then we walk through it with them. And in this, we trust the love of God to use his Holy Spirit to continually mold us and to continually shape us into the image of Christ until the day when love is fully manifested comes. In this Advent season, we will look back on the love of God that was revealed in his first coming. But we also have eyes forward to the day when God's love is not just demonstrated, but it's manifested. For the sake of the theme of love today, we'll call the first advent of Christ his proposal of love to his people. The scriptures use this picture kind of often, so much so that they call the church the bride of Christ. And we are a bride that is being prepared. But prepared for what? The wedding day. The Bible specifically refers to it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's go to Revelations 21, verses 1 through 4. I think it is on the screen. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things had passed away. This is the day that we look forward to. This is the day that we have anticipating in our lives. The wedding day. The day when the love of God is brought to full side, the day when all things are made new, when we dwell with our God for eternity, and the day when sin is removed forever. And we ought to constantly be dwelling on this love of God. The love that was displayed in his first advent, and we long for the day when we get to see love face to face. Now, maybe this morning you have a love tank. That's what we kind of talked about earlier. Your love tank's feeling like it may be on E. Well, through repentance and believing the gospel, Jesus promises to put you under this fountain of love that flows from the cross, and he will pour his Holy Spirit into you, making you the adopted child of God. You can experience the fullness of love that comes from Jesus and Jesus only. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we do just that. We experience and reflect on the love of Jesus. We get to reflect on his body that was broken for us. We get to reflect on his blood that was shed for us. We come to be reminded of Christ's 
demonstration of love on the cross. And as we come to this supper, we come with expecting and anxious hearts. We come understanding that at this table, we'll be momentarily full, but we're gonna have to come back. And we look forward to the day when there's no coming back to the table because God himself, he's our sustenance. He's with us. And we look forward to this day like a bride that's preparing for her wedding day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. A love that chased down the rebel, a love that is initiating those who run. God, this is a love we never could have earned, we never would have deserved. And on, on the cross that you took in our place, you publicly announced your love for us and our need of that love from you. And so God, if there's one here today that has never experienced the love of God, they feel like the most unlovable creature to ever walk through these doors, to ever walk on the earth. Help them see the love that you gave us through your son. A love with no strings attached, a love with no conditions for us to meet, but the condition that you met for us, Jesus, the rest that accompanies that. And as we go throughout this holiday season, let this time of Advent transcend past December, transcend past a holiday, but let this be what, what we focus on every day, every hour, this magnificent love of God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.